It is Crosstown Conversations, and I am very happy to be here today. I've had a very interesting week. We're going to talk about it before the show is over because I want to share with you some of the lessons I learned through my experience uh, being in a hospital this week with a loved one and um, having to remember all the lessons I learned from years ago when my mom was still around, and I had to figure out how to basically manage her care in the hospital, which essentially everybody needs to do because everybody's very busy in the hospital, and you're the only one who's right there and really cares about your loved ones. So we're going to talk about that. We're um, I've got a really interesting guest here who knows how to make money. Anybody out there who wants to make a little bit of money? So listen carefully and call in, ask her questions, because... She knows how to do it. She turns everything she's ever done into into making money. And um, then we're going to talk with people who are putting on the Parade of Houses this weekend. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about what's going on in the housing market in New Orleans. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? Do you have a house in your neighborhood that has gone from, you know, 50000 to 150000 <laughs> There's that kind of thing happening. And then... Of course, we don't have enough affordable housing for our people, and there's all kinds of issues about deciding where you're going to live. So we're going to talk with folks from the uh, Parade of Houses, the um, Home Builders Association. But first, let's get started with this gal who, you know, she had a life in retail. She started when she was 12? Um, 15. 15. Erica Tannen. Erica Tannen is my stepdaughter. She is Bob Tannen's daughter, so you can imagine she's creative like him. And um, she starts out in retail, and we're going to talk about that, because that, that's kind of like a, a, a big thing. While other uh, young girls are playing soccer, you're in a boutique selling to them, right? I had a very early abiding interest in fashion, and I sort of went for it. I think very few people know exactly what they want to do at a young age, and I did, and I stuck with it through college. I majored in small business administration and fashion marketing, opened my own store my senior year in college. Looking back, I think, whoa, that's crazy now that I have a 21-year-old of my own, um, and stuck with it for 25 years and uh, loved my career in fashion, was very excited about it. I was on an executive level. I either had my own stores or I had um, I was vice president of small chain boutiques. And then one day I just didn't like it anymore and decided that I, um, I should get out while I still, before I saw the writing on the wall for the internet um, and online shopping taking over um, the small boutique business, and it scared me, and I thought, if I'm going to get out, this is probably a good time. Okay, so uh, let's let's start right there because um, I've I've been wondering about that. You know, I, I, I'm sort of you know, I'm not as much a, a a apparel shopper anymore in my later chubbier years, but uh, I still like to haunt the antique shops. And I think about those antique shops, and I think they must be suffering because now you can go on eBay, you can go on any number of your first dibs if you got that kind of money. Well, I think you can look at it two ways, and I think online shopping has, has changed um, dramatically. Certainly they're the big guys, but 
I think for the smaller antique stores, there really was an opportunity to get involved in eBay and first dibs and maybe um, market to a larger audience. I think it's the parallel between what I've done in from going from a retail career to essentially a blogging career um, and trying to figure out where is that market, who's paying attention, how do I reach them, and how do I cash in on it. Hmm. So let's let's um, let's let's come to the end of your retail. So career. the end of my retail career it was funny. I was thinking um, I'd stay home with my daughter for a couple of years because I really had been unable to spend a lot of time with her as a working mom who traveled a lot to New York and to other markets for um, my job. And I had a lovely time hanging out with my daughter for two years, and then I sort of wore out the go to lunch, go to yoga routine and needed to get back into it. I have a very busy mind. Um, yoga helps and um, wanted to do something new and really had a very specific skill set that I wasn't sure would um, translate to uh, uh, another industry. One thing I knew was the Internet was really um, blooming at that point. It was 2007 or eight and I wanted no inventory in this new venture. I wanted no employees in this new venture. That didn't really pan out. And um, I wanted something that was flexible and I could do at home and hopefully make money at. The one advantage that I had that not everybody has, of course, starting a new business and being extremely entrepreneurial is that my husband was making enough money to support me and get me off the ground. So. I had the luck of that. So for the first two years of um, this new business that I started called the E-List, which was and is a um, – it's not really a blog. I guess that's the easiest way to describe it. I launched it as a newsletter, a lifestyle newsletter that would appeal to the same market that I was appealing to in my retail clothing stores, which was really women over 40, um, well, maybe over 30. And um, I thought that there was a need – in Connecticut, um, in a, a variety of these shoreline towns, the demographic is, um, well, the population exists in a bunch of very small towns, unlike New Orleans where you have sort of a denser population. And people are used to traveling between the towns to find shopping and restaurants and art venues. And I thought if I could develop enough of a following by writing about these things, then maybe I could also attract advertisers, and that would be that would fund the endeavor. And um, I kept at it for a long time before I was able to attract those advertisers. Well, how long a time? Because that's kind of one, uh, you know, people I are always... I think the key is, for anybody starting a blog or starting um, an Internet-based um, business, the key is knowing exactly who you're going after, having something personal to say but not making it all about you. That's why I don't like to call it a blog because it's a very personal endeavor, but it's not about me. It's really about what goes on in Connecticut and in these shoreline towns. And I think the other element is that I've always liked to write, and I write – relatively coherently, and I developed a voice that people felt like they knew me, and I was telling them, go to this great restaurant, go to this fabulous store, go to this amazing so art museum. So it was almost as if you were like a friend. I was their friend, and I am their friend. And I would say out of the 17,000-plus readers I now have, which for New Orleans is probably not that many, but given my little town is only 3,000 people, I have <laughs> – it's a pretty big 
readership and a big subscribership. And they do feel like they're my friends. And they write to me. And it's actually developed. I think my original idea was to develop an online community of like-minded people. It's not as much give and take as I thought it would be. But I also do many big events where I get to meet my readership. And it's it's worked into a very lovely income stream and a nice lifestyle and uh, pretty lucky, I would say. So what what is it about the content of your newsletter that is attractive? Well, I think it's important to say that I started thinking that it was going to be more of an arts-based newsletter. I was very involved in a local museum on the board, come from, I'm sure most of your listeners know, a very artistic family. Personally, have no artistic talent, but um, so... My initial idea was that it would be more arts-based because there's so many art events going on in my area. However, my buying background, I was very driven by the data, and it was clear to me at the very beginning when I was watching what people were clicking on and responding to through Google Analytics and through other analytical metrics that I have on my newsletter that people were not that interested in art. They say they are but they're not actually that interested in purchasing or seeing or viewing. So um, the activity that was most prevalent was really the clicks on the um, on food and shopping, and I quickly geared my content to those sort of articles that would appeal to my audience. So I, it's in that sense, it's not a blog. It's really driven by what my audience wants, and I continually fine-tune the content to deliver weekly what my audience wants. How do you do that? I look at the, I spend a lot of time with the data. I spend a lot of time with the data. Give me an example. um, Well, let's say my newsletter goes out on a Wednesday morning, and I immediately start looking at what people are clicking on, and then I go through um, my Google Analytics behavior on Thursday. You have to wait a day to see how it matches up to previous articles that I've written. Um, Then when I'm planning content on my content calendar, I go back and I look at what has been popular in the past, what have been my most popular articles. I don't necessarily repeat them, but I rejigger them in some way and offer content that is similar. Um, And that's how you grow a business. You really need to pay attention. In that way, actually, it's not very different than my entire history of buying paying attention to what my audience wants, making sure that we have it going forward, paying attention and providing that content. And that's how you develop a a readership when it comes to blogging. The other thing is you have to like to write. I mean, writing is not an easy thing to do. You have to be able to sit on your pants and crank it out. Um, That, for me, is always the most creative part, but also the biggest struggle. So how how do you... How do you uh, combine? How how do you um, decide what the mix of things is going to be in, it, in any one issue? And uh, how do you know uh, when you say analytics? Ex- explain just a little bit more to someone who doesn't know about analytics how that works. Um, when I'm talking about analytics and metrics, what you're really looking at is most. Um, Email providers like Constant Contact, that is not who I use, but it is somebody who's probably very well known. Um, Emma, which is the one that I use, um, there, there are hundreds of these email providers now. There were very few when I started back in 2008. Provide all the data you really need to know, who's clicked, who's opened, 
Um, you can provide this information, of course, to your advertisers to get them to, you know, entice them to continue advertising with you. Uh, it's a very different digital media. Um, is not that different from traditional media, except there's just so much more information, which is very exciting to somebody who is data-driven the way I am, because I want to know that stuff. Um, I know a lot of people who have blogs who don't pay attention to that kind of thing, and I'm sort of like, well, you're not taking it very seriously. I don't think you can be involved in any Internet media without being really up on um, the techniques to analyze that information, because then you're just shouting. You're not really giving your audience what they want to hear. You're just telling them. And that's not what I'm into. I really want to make sure that they're getting um, the information that they want from me. And, and what are the trends, right? The two kinds of trends that I'm interested in. One, technical. So how are things changing technically? For one thing, I'm sure there's a whole lot more people blogging the way I you are. I can talk a lot about the technical aspect if you'd like. I think um, the difficulty for me, starting this up in 2008, it, it was like learning a new language. I mean, I didn't know even what HTML was, CSS. I don't really know how to code, of course, but I know enough to to figure out what I need to do. So I'm, it's been sort of our um, our mantra. We just we figure it out as we go along. This landscape changes daily. Um, that's one of the things that's really intimidating it's about very being in intimidating. The you have to be it's very constantly changing. It's constantly changing. You have to be very open to always learning new stuff. And uh, I watch a lot of web webinars. Um, I try to stay on top as much of it as I can. I think it's very important for anyone who's in the um, in this digital world to understand where their audience is. For example, Periscope is like the next big thing, and Snapchat is huge with the kids. Is that my audience? No. So I don't spend any time on it. You can't spread yourself so thin that you're um, – that you're, you're spreading yourself across all the social channels. I've been tweeting since 2008. Nobody listens to my tweets, but my Facebook is pretty important, and Instagram has become very important for me and will continue to be important. I don't know about Snapchat. I'm not sure that that is going to dive into my demographic, women in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, that remains to be seen. I personally don't use it. You just have to... Um, Pinterest, again, I find it very fun to use on my own, but is my audience using it as a way to find me? I don't think so. So you have to be um, really, um, you have to be very open to learning about everything coming your way social media-wise, but you have to really pick and choose which so social media platforms are going to apply to your particular audience. How do you do that? Well, you can tell by how fast people are responding, I think, and also it's a bit of intuition. I felt Instagram was going to be very important for me because it's visual, and it's a very simple format, um, and people like to look at it. So, and Periscope, I don't, I just, I'm not into the spoken word. I'm really more of a writer, so I just, I sort of left that one behind, and we'll have We'll have to see how Snapchat play, plays out. When I started out with Facebook, it was all kids, and I knew it was going to grow into the grandmas. I feel the same way about Instagram. Um, it was intuition. Right now, I'm sticking with those as my major social media channels. What do you see coming on beyond this? I mean, what, what, what are you hearing about on those webinars that you attend uh, as, as in terms of what's next, I think the one thing that I know I'm really doing wrong, and it's mainly my fear of being 
on TV is video. Um, video has been and continues to be a very big deal um, digitally and gets the most, you know, the most reactions on Facebook, the heavily, you know, the most clicks, the most views. Um, if I could change one thing about me and the way I approach my business, I would do a lot more video. And what's interesting to me about that, and, and I, I like video myself, and I do a lot of video in the things that I promote, but it, it amazes me because it takes longer to watch a video than it does to just read something quickly, and yet the whole mantra of the Internet is how quickly you can read things. Well, I think what they're saying now is the average adult has an eight-second attention span and people <laughs> I know it's very depressing um, and I know from your you send emails I send emails I've just made my emails more concise and shorter um, people just are bombarded when I first got into this space people weren't receiving thousands of newsletters a week I was sort of semi-unique in this space and now people are bombarded so you have to make your message very concise and very direct and because it's easier for an adult to watch a video sadly than it is to read a paragraph they all do that first um i'm not wildly uh, enthusiastic about it but it's true mm -hmm. yeah I, I think there's another level to it too because video is a you are there kind of media you can feel what you cannot feel in the words. I mean, very, very good writers can convey images through words. But generally speaking, um, it's, it, you can get that emotive impact through you're 100% right You're 100% right on that. I think that's the <coughs> biggest difference is that unless, and I'm an okay writer, but I'm not that great of a writer that I can create the ambiance of, for example, what happens at my insane and sidewalk sale, which is one thing that I do every year, this giant um, retail event. And um, we always video it because I can't really convey the excitement of 1,500 people descending on bargains the way a video can. Okay, speaking of that, so that's another aspect of how you build your blog is through events. Yes, I do. Um, I like the events. I love the events. They take a lot of work, and I wish I could do more of them and had a bigger staff to actually um, launch more of them because they're very popular. We do an annual Insane and Sidewalk Sale where we invite... Insane what? We call it the Insane and Sidewalk Sale. It's in January. Um, I started it the year of the crash when many of my retail friends were stuck with a lot of inventory after uh, after the Christmas selling season, and I brought them in. It was a big pop-up shopping mall. We brought them into one large unused retail space, and everyone sold their inventory for 50% off or better. And it was so popular, we just do it every year. I'd love to do it twice a year. It would be a good thing. And then um, in terms of supporting local business, which is a big passion of mine. We do um, girls' nights out in most of the towns on the Connecticut shoreline. I do about four a year. I organize with all of the boutiques to provide 20% off to my audience, and we meet and have drinks in one restaurant, and then we all go shop the town, and it's really like a cash mob, and the stores love it. The cash um, mob? It is. It's a cash mob, and the retailers love it. The audience loves it, and it's a whole lot of fun. I get to meet all my readers, so it's I really enjoy it. Tell me about your readers. My readers, well, it's hard to group them, I guess, into one very specific. I would say they're mainly women. I mean, the classic demographic of Connecticut, sure. They're mainly women over 30. Um, some work, some don't work. 
that are looking for interesting things to do with their kids. I have a lot of grandmas who um, kids are out of the house and ha actually have time to go to things like girls' nights out and go to museums and, and do a lot of the events that I, that I hold. So how long do you think you'll be doing blogging and how, or whatever you want to call it, newslettering? Um, how, how long do you see yourself doing it and how do you see your, um, what you're doing morphing? How, how is that, how, how do you see it changing? That's a really good question. I am definitely at a point where I would like to morph a little bit. Um, not that I'm bored. I really love what I do, but it's, uh, you know, I've been doing it for eight years. So I would like to find ways to do other things within the same um, digital media. I'm offering different kinds of advertising now. We're always thinking up new things. I'm hoping to do more events. I don't know. And, of course, you know, it would be great if somebody came along and said, hey, I want to buy you. Aha, uh -huh. so is that an option? <laughs> Well, I think anybody who's entrepreneurial starts their business hoping that one day somebody else will be interested in taking it over. So, um, you know, if you were in New Orleans, and you know New Orleans a little bit because you've been coming here for years because of your family here, how would you, what, what would you think of as, a, as, a, as of an Internet product that makes sense to you that would be something that, somebody could actually build and generate income from? Well, I'm sure there are a lot of blogs in New Orleans now. I've read quite a few of them. but um, a Like what? What have you read? Um, um, I can't remember the exact names okay. at, at the moment. But um, I do some research always before I come down here. I've read some of the blogs. I think there's a huge opportunity here. Um, it's a question of developing the audience, but what would really excite me about being in a market like New Orleans is that there would be endless content. There are new restaurants opening all the time. There are new shops opening all the time. There's a very vibrant art scene. There's a whole new um, demographic who has moved down here. There's a lot going on. I mean, New Orleans is a very different place now than it was before Katrina. So um, I think that... What would excite me about it is that there just seems to be endless content. Mm -hmm. So would you do the same kind of a thing, a hyper-local lifestyle um, blog, or would you do something else? Um, I guess I'd have to think about it, but, you know, I think the lifestyle blogging, if you have a voice that's true um, and authentic, people like it. People like to have their life edited for them. There's so much information coming at you at all times that if you have a voice that people feel resonates or is authentic and you say, go to this restaurant, go to this dress shop, you know, go to this museum, go to this opening, go to this band, go to this bar, this is the best cocktail, people listen. And uh, yeah, I would, hey, maybe I'll move to New Orleans and start over. <laughs> any day now any day now you're welcome definitely well i i, I mean i I've, I've loved hearing about it um this is not the only thing you do in life so is is there anything that is kind of tangential to what you've been doing that you would like to share with the audience and and and, and or what what recommendations would you give somebody who was thinking about doing this? I mean, we've kind of covered that in some of the questions I've asked. But if you were to sort of say the top 
three lessons that you've learned that you would tell somebody who is about to try to do a newsletter blog to earn money? And by the way, we really didn't talk about that because I forgot to ask you how you sold your advertising because that's the most essential thing. It's one thing to do all the content, but you got to do that advertising sales part too. So what? let's say, you know, what, what are the top few hints that you would give somebody who was getting ready to do something that, you know, they're aiming to actually develop it as a business, not just for the fun of it. I was super lucky because I fell into affiliate advertising at the very beginning, and I just discovered it. What um, does that mean? Affiliate, affiliate advertising is um, networks of very large companies who provide ads. Um, you see it all the time on, on, you know, when you get the Google ads on your on any website that you're looking at. Um and I didn't know anything about it, and I just fell into it. And so I started putting these affiliate ads on my newsletter. And so it looked like Tom's Shoes and Bobby Brown Makeup and all of these large companies were behind me. And actually, I was making pennies because I had such a small readership at the, that point, nobody was um, clicking on them. But it attracted local advertisers who thought, oh, how did she get these national advertisers? So it was completely, in my case, by mistake. Um, and then as the local advertisers were successful with me, I attracted more. But it took me a couple, I can't remember exactly how long, but it took me a good two to three years before I could even say that I had a steady stream of income and then um, could hire somebody and, and get moving. But I think the takeaway is for anybody in this space or looking to be in this space, because it's now so crowded, you really have to define who you're talking to. You have to be really specific about what you're going to provide to them and at least in my case, it's all driven by the data. And if um, if that's not your thing, then this may not be your thing either. So you you really have to be ready to deal with the um, the, the technical aspects of the data. Yes, I, analytics I, I, and I think so. so. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I've loved it. It's been but really it's fun, fun for me. Of all the things that you've promoted, this is our closing question. Of all the things that have been promoted through your site, what was the what were some of the most successful and why? The Insane and Sidewalk sale, even though it's my own event, is always the most successful thing that I promote because it appeals to everybody. It's a, it's more of a blanket appeal than it is, you know, some people really Yeesh. like the food stuff. Some people want to know where to get the best lobster roll. Um, other people are more interested in um, some of the art stuff that I write about. But I would say that it just has the, the most general appeal. So I would say that usually is the top click of the year anything to do with the insane and sidewalk sale. event. Fascinating. What did I tell you guys? This girl has it under control, right? She knows what she's doing. She got into the business to be in business, not just to have fun. She figured out how to make it work. And um, I think, in a way, I, the lesson I take away from it is is, is the deliberateness that's yes, involved it's very in making deliberate. it work. Yeah. Right. Erica Tannen, it's called the E-List. Even though you don't live in Connecticut, you can check it out, get some ideas from what she does online. How do you do it? E-List dot? It's the-e-list.com. But if do you, that again if from you the Google the, If you Google the E-List, it will come up. It'll come up. So yeah. you go you Google the E-List and, and, and learn from the from the master how to do it. Not and exactly, uh, but you know, we, you. we need more We need more blogs and newsletters in New Orleans because... God knows we're not getting enough information from the you-know-what <laughs> mass media in town. I call the local news now the crime news. You know, it's just crime news. It's just sad. Erica Tanner, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Who's shopping after, after uh, the show, you or me? 
I'm going shopping now. Good. I'm actually thinking about Willie Mae's chicken on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me some home, too. All right. Thanks All right. so you much. You know how to get there? Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. We've just covered um, the world of blogging, and now let's jump into the housing universe because, oh, my God, if there's anything in the city of New Orleans that is on fire and changing, it is the housing market. It's crazy. It is utterly crazy. There's a there's a um, two-story kind of what they used to call, I guess, like a slave quarters type building, you know, a, a, a narrow uh, building on Barrack Street that we could have bought when we bought our house in 1975. We could have bought that house for $20,000, right? Okay. You know what it just sold for. Take a guess. It's about 2,000 square feet. It's on Barrack Street between Miro and Tanti. It just sold. Seven fifty. Uh, nah. <laughs> We're talking Barrack Street. So, no, it was, but it was almost $400,000. I just couldn't believe yeah. it. So two questions, kind of what is going on? What is driving this, number one? Number two, what about folks who can't afford these increasing prices? How do they survive in their neighborhoods? And I've been trying for the past several years to find out who in this country has solved the issue of protecting the former residents and even the early pioneers from the from the results of gentrification. Hallelujah for gentrification. It makes our neighborhoods prettier and it's beautiful and pe- people get to move here. We get a better economic base, blah, blah, blah. In the meantime, there are people who are just being pushed out. There must be some more clever ways of dealing with that. Yeah, and, and I think what... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't introduce John Luther, who is executive vice president of the Home Builders Association. And he's actually here to talk about the parade of homes that's coming up this weekend. So don't let me go on and on. About I want to talk about housing. Let's get it on. Let's talk right. about housing that's broadly. Right. And uh, the parade, of course, is a, a facet of, of what we do. Thank you, Gina. It's, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Um, Thank you. You know what? I think with respect to... You have a radio voice. You must have been in radio no. in your life. Never? <laughs> I, I wasn't. Oh, no, but no. thank you. I'll take that compliment. Um, where, where we're at right now in the city of New Orleans, I, I agree with you. We're, we're approaching scorching hot. But at the same time, I don't think we're too far along yet where there are going to be some irreversible or irretrievable patterns that we'll never be able to get out of that aren't good for our community. So I think it's it's really an appropriate time for a for us to take a little bit of a breath and really assess. And I know a lot of us are doing that in the industry and otherwise we're assessing where are we here with respect to to the economic development and the growth in our city and in our region. Uh, what is the wage structure? Uh, what, clearly, what is the housing looking like, the housing patterns, the affordable uh, or the lack thereof uh, of the housing, the affordability? It's a, it's a good time now to, before we go too far down the track, to really start looking at these things. Um, you, you, you mentioned other cities or other areas. Where have they solved issues such as this or issues such as gentrification? I don't know that they have. I think some cities handle it better than others. In my experience, I've been in the industry about 25 years now. I, I do know that very rarely is the panacea going to, to be discovered by just one area or one theory or mechanism. This is It's complex. It's evolving. Uh, and it takes, frankly, uh, a real collaboration 
collaboration of, of, of the, of the local government, uh, clearly of, of a lot of the different communities and, and, and associations and, and very frankly, private industry. Uh, you know, all of those groups need to be working together, uh, you know, in order to, to, to have us start to resolve some of these issues because they're, they're extremely complex, but they're critical because I think, you know, when you look at some of these issues, it's a it's a symbol of progress in one way in that people are interested in our city. They're interested in what we're going to be doing in the next 25 years in this city. Uh, but as you alluded to, let's 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 take as many folks with us on on this ride forward. And you know that that's the easy piece of it. The harder piece of it, of course, is is getting there. Yeah. Um, so what what. What brought on this change? I mean, it seems to have been, I mean, there was really a sharp departure from the way things were before. You weren't here, if I understand correctly. You came just on the cusp of the storm. About three weeks before Katrina. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, New Orleans was in trouble back then. I mean, I, I, it was going down. And then you had, and then we go down big time with right. the storm. Right. And then it's very difficult time, without a doubt. There isn't anybody who lived in the city. I don't care if you lost your home or just your friends lost their homes. It was very difficult. And then there's this crazy craving for the city that develops because people around the country, my theory is, learned about the city in the present tense, where they had thought of it in an, in an historic sense, and it was all about you know, traditional jazz. But then they finally sort of connect up with the Nevilles and and uh, uh, and, and all the bounce and, and, and uh, hip-hop that's coming out of here. And there's a, uh, not to mention coming here, uh, a lot of people wanted to come and help. They come and help. If you spend more than a couple of weeks in New Orleans, you're going to have a hard time ungluing yourself from the town, right? You're so hooked. You get all these people who stayed here, but... It's got to be more than that. There's something else going on that, that has people coming in. I know people are on the move around the country, right? It's not just New Orleans. Right. There, there's that a is, lot of terrific smaller cities that are becoming larger cities, anything from Louisville to San Antonio, um, you know, even Memphis, which is, you know, older as, as we think about it, um, to Birmingham. And, and, and so you have a lot of this same activity um, that, that is being generated as we speak in, in a lot of those same cities. I'm very involved with our National Association of Home Builders and do things all over the country. And uh, so in that regard, we should be proud that we are a, a destination for people and not just for tourists. But again, we have to do this right the first time in the sense of how we set up for the next 20 or 25 years um, because what you don't want is this influx and and then, you know, some type of immediate drain a couple of years later if you're setting up for something more long term, which I believe we are. Um, you know, and, and me not being from here or a native, um, you know, I've been here 11 years now, which almost makes me an infant uh, here here in the city. But at the same time, I've, I, I like to think I came in with some fresh eyes and I saw some things that were just uh, just amazing about the city that harkened back to 100 plus years ago when it was considered, you know, on the class of some of the world class cities, Philadelphia, or at least in the U.S., New York, Philadelphia. I mean, New Orleans was 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 in that same in that same uh, regard a lot of those same resources are still there. And, and, and again, I, I, I think if more, if we can't get a critical mass of our existing citizens 
namely, and those who are flowing here to participate in, in, in that next evolution, well, then we're going to miss a lot of opportunities, not to mention it, it, it'll be very difficult life for, for a lot of people, as it is right now, frankly. So um, it, it, there's, a, there's a feeling I have that uh, we're growing, just as you said, but at, at, at any time... It could sort of drop back. I mean, you could fall off. I worry about some of these young people who came here thinking, oh, this is a really creative place and the cost of living is lower. Well, as the cost of living is actually rising, and it's not a good job market. It really is not. And so they either have to be entrepreneurial and figure out how to do it, do it DIY, do it themselves. Um, then it starts to be an experience not unlike where they're coming from. So they have their two and three jobs. And I, I worry about us keeping people. Jean, you, you've identified what, what I think to be the crux of all of this. You know, of course, I come from this from the housing industry standpoint. And, you know, we're, we're speaking a lot locally and nationally about affordability. And, you know, I, I, I do believe that's a relative term, but I think uh, on a baseline, most of us know what that means. That, that, that means we, we don't want families or individuals spending, you know, more than uh, a third of their income, uh, hopefully, on, on housing unless they choose to, so to speak. The bigger issue, I think, to me, and again, not being from here, is how we're structured with regard to our wages here in this city. So, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a supporter of housing and housing construction unabashedly, but I think also that when we say we have an affordability problem, it isn't just a housing affordability problem. It's a transportation problem and a health care problem and a food problem and all of these things because of the nature of the, uh, you know, the, the median income for a, a family of four in the city. So those are big societal issues, obviously. And again, I, I just I just do housing, but um, I think we still have to look at all of these things holistically, uh, and and you know because it would be expedient or convenient, perhaps maybe to to put some initiatives out to 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 uh, interfere with the housing market, if you will. Uh, and there are plenty of complex complex initiatives out there that would try to guide the housing market in certain ways so as to create more housing, more affordability, what, what have you. This is more complex than just doing that. And that's, those are the discussions we're having, I think, internally in the city and otherwise. What does it mean if we really need to get more units on the ground or affordable units? Or maybe we have enough of them now and we haven't really done a good job of rehabilitating lots of areas of our of our of our city and what comes with that well infrastructure why why rehabilitate a really nice block of homes if your road and your sewer and your water and your parks and your schools aren't very good yeah. those are big issues those are big issues so uh, which neighborhoods in the city right now would you say have the greatest chance of having a real sustained pattern of growth that it's not going to be a flash in the pan. It's going to keep going. I, I don't know how you have a neighborhood develop with it being a, a flash in the pan. Once it starts developing, it keeps going. Yeah. I can imagine most of the time, right? Yeah. And I go, I come from the context that, and this is, this is certainly not a, 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 an insulting comment, not meant as much, but New Orleans really isn't that big of a town. And no. you know, it's, 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 it's not relatively speaking. And, there should be opportunity to develop this entire city. You know, we, 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 we spoke, we've spoken before about, you know, 
coastal protection and, and storm protection and where we do and don't build relative to, to elevation and, and flooding and all of those sorts of things. And we on some level have to rely, we in the construction, home construction industry have to rely on if the federal government are telling us that these levees are certified, then we have to rely on that. Um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, maybe folks thought that as well. I don't know. Um, but if, if, if that's the case, that's kind of your well, first. Well, you, you may have heard the uh, interview on the show just before us um, and the gentleman who was on saying we are the safest we've ever been. Now, right. with rising oceans and uh, coastal erosion and all the other factors that go along with that, um, it's still dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's a that's, dangerous place to Yeah, be. that's way out of my purview, but it, at least it closer into the city, if you will, with, with, you know, we're now evaluating in the city of New Orleans and Jefferson Parish the, these final flood insurance rate maps, these so-called firm maps. And so we need to really have a good indicator as to what those are going to look like because it's going to affect property insurance. You know, and, and a couple of years ago, you know, when we were dealing with, with some of the property insurance issues, people were being priced right out of their home just by their property insurance. That's so, happening. That's yeah, happening to us. Right. And so it's still an issue we're working on to see where these maps are going to end up. But it goes back to, to the point you ask where, where are neighborhoods that could, that we could build in that would stay sustainable. I think with assurances that we're going to keep them safe, from flood or, or from, from, from damage. Otherwise, uh, we have a lot of nice opportunity going all the way out east to Lake Pontchartrain, frankly, except for Bayou Sauvage. Uh, you know, New Orleans East, in my estimation, still has some of the best, if not the best, infrastructure in the entire city. Really? Yes. Uh, you That's know, because it's so much newer. It's newer. It's newer. You know, and, and some of the housing stock is tremendous. We've but had, you had so much flooding out there. Th- th- there was. And so those are some of the things, again, going back to is it is it going to be safe from a surge perspective and a flooding perspective? Those are, those are the indicators that, that we really need to look at. At because there's opportunity then to build, you know, from the east in, so to speak, in you know, Lower Ninth Ward. I mean, you know, we did a little development project with the, the uh, NFL um, Players Association a couple years ago for the Super Bowl in the Lower Ninth. And frankly, once we got to know the community and the community got to know us, uh, we couldn't have been treated any better by those folks. They were they were extremely cooperative and and helped us inform us as to what those houses should look like. And and we built them and it turned out pretty pretty well. I, I'm a big believer in that area. And I know there's folks working down there really hard still to 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 have others give it a look. Uh, but but unless and until the infrastructure is tended to more formally, uh, and unless yeah. somebody gives a darn about the area. Well, you know, where are we going to go with it? Uh, this Gentilly, there's some, some terrific things happening in and around here. Gentilly is on fire. It What's is on fire. Yeah, you know, again, there it's was a uh, point. There was a point after the storm when it looked like Gentilly wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. I, I agree. Were really I down, agree. Yes. Down, down. I agree. So what happened? I, I, I guess, uh, you know, I look at it this way. Only so many people can and want to live uptown New Orleans or in the CBD or places like that. There are a lot of terrific areas citywide that those who are from here know that. But maybe those, as we spoke about a little bit earlier, who are moving into the area, well, they don't. Unless they're here a little while, they don't start to really know what's out there for them. We've got in our parade of homes, uh, this is the second weekend coming up, we've got a really terrific house in Vista Park. You know, it's on uh, Charlotte Vista Drive. Park. Vista Park is not not far from where we're at now, which uh, yeah, for the listeners. Well, we're by the fairgrounds. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, Vista Park is 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 
an area I think that that could absolutely uh, you know continue to, to to ignite that opportunity because like anything else you see some progress in a certain area whether it's commercial or residential but lots of time even commercial things will flow to it you know you look at some of these 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 national chains and you know they have their place. But oftentimes, if you see somebody building a, 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 you know, a Whole Foods or a Starbucks or something like that, well, they've done their numbers and they know this is an opportunity for growth. Um, so, so we're real proud that with our parade of homes, you know, we're of course in seven parish region, but we've got a lot of really great homes that be, are being built as we speak in right here in the heart of the city. So, Parade of Homes, tell me about that. Yeah, we've been doing it over 60 years, and it's an opportunity for our builders and our, our materials suppliers and vendors to get together. Uh, you know, they, they essentially put a, put a, a, a you know, a pencil to paper, you know, eight months, nine months in advance, and, you know, they put up a house together, so to speak. Of course, a lot of these vendors and distributors work with the builders, you know, on other things. Um, and some of these houses are under contracts. You know, less of them are spec houses like they used to be, whereby the builder would just build it and hope somebody came and, and, and bought it. That doesn't go on as much when we had a bit of a downturn here a few years ago. But a lot of these are, are under contract. And what it is, though, is an opportunity for it's free to the public. Uh, we do as much advertising as we possibly can. Thank you for, for having me on here today. Um, what we want the public to know is they can come out, they can touch, they can feel, they can speak to these builders, they can speak to these materials vendors and suppliers who might be expert in plumbing and lighting and fixtures and all these other sorts of things, and they can start to develop relationships. If it's somebody who is maybe intending to buy, build a new home, well, there's going to be all kinds of ideas for them. If they're doing a renovation, it could be just a bathroom renovation. There's ideas for them. If they're looking to try to build relationships with prospective builders, there's that opportunity as well. So we have about 17 houses, pretty well spread out. Uh, and spread out around the city? Seven, seven parish area, actually, really? but a lot of them are in, in New Orleans. Uh, we are on the West Bank. You know, you, you asked about Gentilly. Well, something's triggering some, some, some real good activity on the West Bank now, both Jefferson and Orleans Parish. So, of course, we have a, we have a strong presence over there as well. I, I, it's amazing, actually, how many people you talk to in the city and you ask them where they live. Because I was just recently in a he- hospital and I would ask every nurse, every nurse's aide, every doctor, what, what part of town do you live in? Unbelievable, the number of people who said the West Bank. Is that right? It yeah. was, it, yeah, it was, it was like the most predominant neighborhood yeah. that was identified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where are the houses? What you say all over the city? Uh, again, we've got area. some in Lakeview. We've got some over, you know, like I said, over here at Vista Park. Um, we've got them in Algiers. We've got them uh, all the way out to Marrero. We've got them in Bell Chase in Plaquemines Parish. We've got them in Kenner. We've got them in Metairie. So, yeah, we're pretty pretty well spread out, and, uh, you know, it's a real nice offering, and, and it's an opportunity not just even we encourage everybody to get out there and just really see them and, you know, proverbially kick the tires, but get online and look at look at all the information we have online as well. And these houses are all houses that are pretty much finished and ready. That's to correct. Go. That's yeah. correct. And are they for sale? Yes. Well, some again, some, some of them, some of them are under contract. And if, if there are, is a particular house that you just, you wish that were yours kind of deal, well, that's where the relationship with that builder develops. And they could certainly build you that so the same house. Are on premise. Yes, all, all the time. So right. this is on June 4th and 5th is gone. Right. 11th and 12th. Right. 
from 1 to 5 p.m. How does right. that, Free uh, to the public. Oh, it's free. Yes, ma'am. So yep. you don't have to go register something. No, none of just... that kind of thing. None of that kind of thing. We've, we've got uh, lots of great opportunities. Uh, you know, uh, inform people are in these homes, too. So anything conceivable that you might – we've got lenders and banking people in these homes, insurance people oftentimes. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you can get oh, a lot so of good like information. It, it really is. Each, each home is almost like a little one-stop shop. That's that's impressive. That oh, thank really you. Is. Thank I've you. got one last question mm-hmm. I want to ask you before we uh, get in close to the end of the show. And, and, and contractors, mm-hmm. this continues to be a, a, a thing that you can't. It's just so heartbreaking. I don't. Uh, there's two things on television right now that are heartbreaking for me. It's the SPCA ads, which drive me crazy with these pitiful little doggies that just look like they would been, you know, got the wrong end of life. Yeah. That that one drives. The other one is stories about contractors and and you know some. It doesn't even have to be quote the little old lady. It could mm-hmm. be some young couple that uh, thought they were on. And I sit on the historic district landmark commission. And so I am like hearing sob stories every single right. week about somebody who's either it was a situation where like their nephew offered to do their fence for them and he just did it completely out of compliance with the standards of the historic district. Mm-hmm. And, and I keep saying, by the way, this is something actually I would really like to explore with you for a minute. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why there can't be something in the licensing of contractors that doesn't require them to commit to know where the historic districts are and what the process is for knowing what you can and cannot do. Because the number of people who come through those chambers on a monthly basis who worked with the contractor who said, cool, let's put up vinyl windows, Mm -hmm. which is just, you know, or, or cool, let's put up wood grain hardy board. These are things that Oh my God! And then that woman has to, that family has to tear all that out and start all over again. These are people who don't have a lot of money to begin with. So, so you would be How referring to something like almost like a localized license? Because some saying, some jurisdictions do that. I mean, of course, to be to do any work, you know, seventy five hundred dollars and above uh, residential construction, you need to be registered and licensed with the state board for contractors licensing. But there are local jurisdictions that that have, uh, I don't want to call them more onerous, but more specific. Areas of concentration that they want the contractors to be uh, oh, I didn't cognizant of. Sure. Where have you seen that? Uh, Jefferson Parish has has its own, uh, you know, more more. Jefferson Historic Parish. Well, no, Jefferson Parish just <laughs> itself. You know, Jefferson Parish itself is is an individualized license that now oftentimes it's it's more or less you know just just being able to get into the into the system but uh, again if you're if you're our, our builders and our 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 contractors it, it it's pretty much in my experience with them is if they know the rules of engagement and the rules of engagement and their estimation are are, are fair um they're going to build their business around that it's when things are always changing and, and 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 certain regulations or certain other laws are are just continuously being amended. Uh, that takes away that stability because you know these, these are folks that are trying to make a living and they're setting thing up for profit and and and, and it's a very well honed process when you build a build a house, obviously. Okay, but here, here's my thing. Um, it, it, again, it, it seems like whether it's the nephew syndrome. Or it is a contractor who really should know better. Right. And then the person who's victimized is not right. the contractor, it's the homeowner. Right. I, I don't understand why when that 
contractor gets their license, I, I don't care what kind of, is it local or is it state? Is this, why can't there be some provision in that contract that, um, just like when you get a driver's test, you have to know whether you can turn left on a street with a red light or whatever. You, you know, you, there are certain rules that you learn. Why can't that be part of what the contract has to prove he or she knows about Right, and that would have to come from the state board for contractors licensing. If I, if I, but, but, if, but really, it would have to come, really, from somebody like you, who, on behalf of the industry, and we do a lot of education in that regard. I mean, we teach anything, you know, from how to install, you know, historic wooden windows. To, I mean, so we do that education, but we're not going to necessarily know of all of the people that aren't affiliated with us in any way or even are that don't, you know, that, that we just haven't connected with, that they're going into the historic districts to work. So it's a little bit difficult in that regard to, you know, to, to, to I don't know every one of my, I've got over 500 contracting firms that are a member of my organization. I don't pretend to know all of them and all of what they do. I know a lot of them. Uh, and I know some of them that work in the, you know, in the quarter and different places like that. But 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 you know maybe some more broad public service kind of announcement you know, or I I, really I don't know. Think, I, I, that's what we sort of you know we've been discussing mm -hmm. this internally. Sure. With the staff of of the um, HGLC trying to come up with uh, some and, and that was where we landed is with mm -hmm. the public. But you know quite frankly you can only run those for so yeah, long. Right. Right. And right. they only can be seen by so many people. And contractors are out there working all day long. How many of them are watching the news and, right. and so. I don't think that's it. I think yeah. it has to be something where they are required to know. Mm -hmm. Where almost like the Pledge of Allegiance, you sign and say, you know, I am going to determine whether a project I'm working on is in an historic district and make sure that my client talks with the HDLC or that I do to determine what. You know, if, if you're putting up roofing that's the wrong color or you're putting – because it's very sticky. Sure, I mean, I'm, sure. I'm, I kind of sometimes feel it's a little bit too too specific and too <laughs> right, sticky. Right, right. You I said mean, that, I, not I me. <laughs> I had the simple experience of wanting to put up louvered shutters on my house. Yeah. And uh, they said – oh, no, solid. I wanted to put up solid right. shutters in, in order for hurricane protection. And they said – no, you can't do that. It's not historically correct. We finally resolved it that we could do the um, louvered in the in the front where they required it, and we could have our closed um, mm -hmm. on the sides of the house. But so, but uh, there's got to be a way to avoid people either quote being taken advantage of, and I think right. there are some companies out there, especially these window frame companies, mm -hmm. that like to build those vinyl windows that are totally inappropriate in most historic districts, or um, in general to, in that initial process when they get licensed or when they renew their licenses, that they actually, I don't know what, have to pass a test or, or, um, uh, or have to make some kind of a commitment or are simply made aware in their copy that it is your obligation. It, it's, you're a professional contractor we are authorizing you to be a professional contractor in the city of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. You need to know where the historic districts are and make sure that you are checking in with them on the details. Mm -hmm. This is just to avoid people having to do th spend three times the money mm -hmm. doing it the first time, taking it down, mm -hmm. and doing it the second time. Right. That right. ain't fair. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think getting to 
understand who it is that's doing this work or I'm interested in doing this work. That's another thing. Because, How about showing some analytics and yeah, Because I think that's more offenders. the issue because, you know, there are – Oh, gosh, I, I, I want to say something. I don't know how many thousands of licensed contractors there are in the state of Louisiana of whom, you know, a large percentage of them don't do any historic work and they're not even near any historic districts. But for those who, you know, know they're going to be working in the city of New Orleans and they're going to get a license, that's how in some mechanism you catch their attention. Uh, again, but that, that's that, kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, it yeah, may I, not even be a regulation. Right, or right, a right. It's just something that says – Please don't. I understand where you're going. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's... Well, okay. We're just about out of time. I appreciate you um, indulging that concern of mine. No, but thank I, you. I, thank I you. I sit for, for four for hours sure. on a Thursday <laughs> once a month and listen to these horrible stories. Yeah, and it just breaks my heart. Right, right. Somebody uh, and, and does again. it wrong. Uh, and, uh, it's very often it's a contractor, and it really shouldn't happen. This is all about the Parade of Homes. It is this weekend. It is June 11th and 12th from 1 to 5 p.m. And if you go on the website at NOLA PO, <laughs> P-O-H, um, Parade of Homes, obviously, dot org, you can get the details on where the houses are. It's free. You can just go see it and have a blast. And it's been terrific talking yeah, to you. you. I think Jean. you should Likewise. have your own radio show. You have a great radio voice. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate appreciate you having us on here. This, this has been fun. Much. Thank you. And, and keep at it. Okay, All thanks. right, y'all. Thank you. This is Gene Nathan. It's Cross Town Conversations. We are over for this week. I'll talk with you next week. I didn't get to the hints for uh, patient care. We're going to do that next week. Okay. <laughs>